Hey guys, welcome to episode 115 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're all doing really well and in the mood for a pretty heavy hitting case because that's what we have on the agenda for today. I'm still having nightmares about the stories from our last episode. So even though this is a really bizarre sentence to say out loud, and I'm only saying it because I know I'm in good company, I am happy to get back into some murder today. Yeah, me too. Also, I have to add, we are in the light today. Light is on, not like last time where I was scared in the dark, which I am not afraid to admit. So I'm glad that you're not doing this to me. We should always record in the dark, though, because it got more reaction out of you. No. You were terrified. You you know what? How about we leave it up to our audience? If they want me to be in the dark while we record, then I will do it. But if Literally and figuratively, John will be in the dark. Yes, that is true. Good point. But yes, if you want me to be in the dark, then let us know. All right. So before we get started, I do just want to make one announcement. Um, The last episode, we didn't thank our new uh, supporters on Patreon. So we will be doing that at the end of this episode. So, John, are you ready for this? This heavy hitter? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Our story begins on May 13th, 2005 in Coeur d'Alene, which is located in the northern panhandle of Idaho. There, the residents brag that they get to see and feel the beauty of all four seasons as they're surrounded by picturesque mountains and lakes. As it was the second week of May, everyone was preparing for the summer. School would be out in a month, and it would be time to have picnics and swim at Coeur d'Alene Lake. One family that was taking said advantage of the warming weather was the Groney McKenzie family. Brenda K. Groney, who was 40 years old, had moved into her boyfriend Mark McKenzie's house on East Frontage Road with her three children from her previous marriage. There was Slade, who was 13, Dylan, who was 9, and Shasta, who was 8 years old. Brenda did have two older children, but they had moved out of the house since then. The family was dealing with the complications of being a blended family, and Brenda sharing joint custody of the children with her ex-husband, Stephen. But from all accounts, everyone said that the family was pretty happy and that they mixed well. That's always a good thing. Yeah. It was Friday, so Brenda and Mark celebrated the end of a long working week. Mark, who was also described as an outdoor enthusiast who loved hunting and fishing, worked full-time as a supervisor at a stainless steel sink manufacturing company in Spokane, Washington, which was just about a 40-minute to hour commute depending on the traffic. He would usually leave his house at 5 a.m. and didn't get home until 5 p.m. He worked hard. So relaxing on the weekends with his girlfriend and her kids playing around them was kind of his thing if he wasn't hunting or fishing. As the couple sat out in their backyard, the children played between the back and front yards, sometimes riding their bikes up the gravel driveway to the road. The driveway was about 150 yards long, and the children loved to go to the edge and watch the semi-trucks pass, trying to get them to honk their horns. Now, the children were warned that they couldn't go into the street, East Frontage Road was located off of Interstate 90, and their house was actually the first house that could be approached when drivers turned off of the interstate. So sometimes they could be going pretty fast, which was why Brenda and Mark always warned the kids about it. Kind of like a pet cemetery situation. You read my mind. I was thinking the same thing. I was going to say it. 
Because their house was so close to the highway, they actually would sometimes get stranded motorists asking for help. Brenda and Mark were always there to lend a hand to those who were in need, which really spoke to their character and patience. As the sun fell, the family of five grew tired. The children were put to bed, and shortly after, Mark and Brenda followed. As they slept in their somewhat secluded house, the base of a mountain, a man circled their home. He wore night vision goggles so he could see inside. He stared in the windows and studied the floor plan of their home, and he watched as the children slept peacefully in their beds. The Gronies and Mark McKenzie didn't know it, but that would be their last peaceful weekend. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Saturday the 14th resembled the day before. The children played in their bathing suits outside the house while Brenda and Mark enjoyed the weather. Mark's brother had dropped off his son to play with Dylan and Shasta, who were around his age, while his brother went off to visit their father. What they were unaware of was off in the distance, the same man from the night before was watching the family. And that night, he would do the same thing. He would watch as the family slept, studying them and the floor plan of their house. Because it had been the second day of him observing the family, he realized two things. First, because the home was secluded, they had no sewer system or even a septic tank. So if they wanted to go to the bathroom, they would have to go to the toilet that was outside that was connected to a septic tank. Oh, so it's like an outhouse. Like an outhouse, but it was a running toilet, but it was just in like a separate entity on the property. Oh, okay. So they would have to leave their house to go use the running toilet. Because of this, they left their back door open so they could come and go in the night if they needed to use the bathroom. So that's the first thing he realized was they leave the back door open. Which is pretty bad. Yeah, but I mean, (laughs) they were very secluded. Their closest neighbor was about a mile away, so they did feel pretty comfortable. But I mean, really, they're pretty close to the interstate, so they're not as secluded as they might have felt sometimes. Maybe when, well, maybe as far as neighbors is concerned. Yeah. Like you just said, I mean, cars come off the interstate all the time, you know, so I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't leave that door unlocked. Right, and I'm sure everyone who's driven down like a long interstate highway in the United States has kind of seen it where you're on the interstate, but there's a road running adjacent to the interstate that's pretty visible. That's what East Frontage Road was like. So the road was visible. I wonder if it was like a very old style house. It was. Is this, Um, I mean, I'm trying to get the picture here. If the person, if this person is using night vision, I'm trying to figure out the time period. What are we looking oh, This at? is 2005. Okay. 2005. Okay. Because I was thinking if if there's an outhouse back there. That threw you off. It th- did throw yeah. me off. But then I also said maybe it's just because there's no like pipes in within the house because it's old. It's just a really secluded area. Okay. I see what you're saying. Now, the second thing that this man in the night vision goggles noticed, who's the, which is absolutely terrifying that someone's looking into your house with night vision goggles. and. Uh, yeah. Um, he actually... 
goes into the house slightly because he does notice that the family has a dog, a pit bull. And this dog he noticed while he was watching the family during the day was very unfriendly to those she didn't know. So when he went to look around the house the second night, he was sure to bring a treat for the dog to begin to train the dog that when he came, he came bearing gifts. So she didn't react the way she would normally react to a stranger. Very scary, but extremely intelligent. Also, I want to add something. Um, it has to do with the night vision again. Sorry. It's interesting because if you're going to use night vision to kind of like like spy on people, that means that there has to be almost zero light on the outside of the pro- property. Like I'm talking like no no like spot lamps or anything like that. Be- no, they didn't yeah. have any lights outside, especially. And they were so far in the woods at the base of a mountain. Like they were kind of in the forest. So yeah, it was very dark. The reason why I say this whole thing is because if you have any light or an extreme light source, it'll actually like, I don't know the right terminology, like a lens flare where if you turn, let's say you had the light, um, your night vision on and someone turn on the lights, it would be completely blinding. Right. Because, you know, it doesn't really work too well. So this person must be in literal pitch darkness looking at them. Well, after his two nights of searching the house, While the family was asleep, he was almost ready to make his move. On Sunday, the 15th of May, Mark and Brenda invited some friends over for a barbecue in the afternoon. Because she needed to get some things, Brenda took the kids into town to run some errands. She didn't realize it, but the man had followed her and watched as they shopped. And during the barbecue, the couple and their friends grilled, drank, and smoked some recreational pot as the children played on the property. But because it was Sunday, their guests left relatively early. This would be the last time that their friends would see Mark and Brenda alive. The family prepared for bed a little earlier than the nights before, because the children had school and Mark had work in the morning. The man that had been watching them chose this night to strike. On Monday, Mark did not show up to work, and the children did not show up for school. The school and Mark's employers thought this was odd and out of character for the family, but did not do any further investigation. On that Saturday, Slade had been hired by a neighbor, Robert Hollingsworth, to cut the grass on his rather large property. After Slade completed the job, Hollingsworth told a 13-year-old boy that he didn't have the proper amount of change to give him, so he was going to have to pay him the next day. Slade agreed and left to return to the family's barbecue. Making good on his promise, Hollingsworth arrived at 12725 East Frontage Road to drop off Slade's money. When he approached the driveway, the man heard the family dog barking. That was not too unusual, but what was was the blood that stained the small covered porch that led to the front door. As he got closer, he noticed dark red stains covering the doorsteps as well. He took a look at the house. It was the early evening, so you would expect a house to have some lights on, but there weren't any. The whole house was pitch black. He also noticed that the cars were in their normal positions, but all of the doors had been left open. Something was wrong. 
Hollingsworth decided that he was not going to go into the house or even look in. Instead, he went directly back to his property and called the county sheriff's department. This had been a strange day for Hollingsworth because this is actually the second call he's had to place to the sheriff's department. Before he had left for work that morning, he noticed a suspicious white pickup truck on his property that he knew had been parked at the McKenzie house the day before. No one was inside, so he called the sheriff's department to let them know about the abandoned vehicle. They had come and they checked out like the VIN number and they were looking into the vehicle potentially being stolen and they said they would be getting back to him about that information. But here he is having to place that second phone call. That's interesting that, you know, this guy's making two phone calls. Whatever it is, it must be related. I'm thinking right off the bat now that you have whoever's watching this family with night vision must have left their car or truck, I mean, sorry, um, somewhere like where, you know, on his property to go investigate them and spy on the family. Right. So this mysterious white pickup truck probably has to do with the crimes that were committed. Yeah. Deputies arrived at the McKenzie house at 6.15 p.m. They found everything that Hollingsworth had reported to be true. They were shocked at the amount of blood that covered the outside entryway of the home. They knocked on the door but received no response. They yelled for the residents to open the door, but still there was nothing but the dogs barking. The deputies walked around the house and peered into the windows just as the intruder had on Friday and Saturday night. In the process, they erased any footprints that could have been found. They could see nothing by peering into the windows. They tried to knock on the windows and get the attention of anyone who could have been inside, but there was no movement except for dogs. What they did see, though, when they peered into the windows was a lot of blood. Because of the amount of blood that they had seen outside and now inside of the home, they made the decision that they needed to enter the home to check on the family. They got to the back door and realized that they wouldn't have to use force to enter the dwelling because it was unlocked. Once in the house with the lights turned on, they saw the reality of the scene. There was more blood than they had expected. They immediately found two bodies on the floor with large pools of blood around their heads where it was clear most of the damage had been done to their bodies. Both victims were bound with duct tape and zip ties. One of the victims looked like a small teenage boy lying face down in a pool of blood. He had what looked like a gunshot wound to his head. There was a lot of duct tape wrapped around his head and more was used to bind his hands, which were positioned behind his back. Near him was an adult woman who seemed to be in her 40s. She was also laying face down in the area between the kitchen and the living room. She had severe injuries to her head as well. Her hands were also bound behind her back, but duct tape and zip ties had been used, and there were zip ties binding her feet together. This was Slade Groney and his mother Brenda. As the officers walked through the house, they found a third victim a balding man with facial hair that appeared to be in his late thirties. It was Mark McKenzie. He was on the floor in the living room. He too had a lot of blood around him. His hands and feet were bound by both duct tape and zip ties. 
He also had a large wound on his head, and the deputies could not determine if this was from blunt force trauma or a gunshot. There was blood spatter everywhere. Many deputies reported being nauseous, not just from the horrific crime scene, but from the strong scent of blood in the air. After a sweep of the entire house was complete, the deputies called for backup and a crime scene crew. They had no idea yet that two of the home's residents were missing. While they were waiting for backup to arrive, the deputies took note of the scene. There were bloody footprints and handprints on the floor and walls of the house, also on some doors. The blood appeared in smears, pools, spatter, and droplets throughout the entire home and in the front entryway. They were careful not to touch or disturb any of it because they knew it would tell the story of what happened to this family. The deputies also noted that there were firearms stored in various locations of the house, but at the time none of the victims had been close to them. By the time the detectives showed up at the scene at 8 p.m., the media had caught on to the story. As the house was being sealed up, it was also videotaped and photographed. On the local news, several homicides were being reported near Wolf Lodge, and the family's house was near kind of like a resort hotel called Wolf Lodge. Okay. And this caught the attention of Lee McKenzie, who knew that her son and his girlfriend and her children lived very near Wolf Lodge. When a picture of her son's house was shown on the screen, she jumped into her car and drove over to his property. The police had shut down East Frontage Road in front of where the McKenzie house was. Lee ran to the yellow tape, and the deputies were waiting there. She explained who she was and demanded to know if her son was okay. Detectives met her at the tape and explained that they couldn't let her into an active crime scene, but that they would be by her house shortly. She asked if the children were okay. And now this was in the early stages of the investigation, so the detective with the sheriff's office didn't even know who the victims were, let alone how many people lived in the house. I mean, they could ascertain that the adult victims had been Mark McKenzie and Brenda Groney, but that was only because of mail that was found in the house and in the mailbox. So when she asked this, the detectives asked her what she meant by the children. Lee told them that there were three. There were three children in that house. And this is when the investigation shifts and completely breaks into two parts. One being focused on the murders and the other part of the investigation was trying to find out where Dylan and Shasta Groney were. So we have missing children and we have three murders. This is awesome. Well, it's interesting. Um, I know what you mean. Yeah. So I don't want to say red flags, but I just want to throw some stuff out there right, right away. What catches my eye is the person who did this. If it's, if it is one person, I I think it is, but if it's one person, this is not their first time doing this. You would not be prepared with night vision, zip ties, duct tape. And also the fact that, I mean, I think it's extremely intelligent that you kind of got a sense of the dog because it seems like that's one one layer of their protection of their home, so you were able to bypass that, and they he must he or she must have known that they had guns in the house if he's been watching them, and knew when to strike so they wouldn't be able to 
reach those weapons. Yeah. Um, also, it's interesting with the kidnapping, which makes me think, okay, yes, there's a murder, and yes, they were being watched. But was this person in question there to take those children, right? Because they killed... The, it was a 15-year-old that was killed, you said. 13. 13, sorry. So he took he or she took those other two children. So they, you're thinking they were the objective. They were the objective, all. and that's why that they've been followed. Remember uh, at the grocery store you said they were followed there as well? It could be that it was for those two children. Right. Yeah. So what you're saying so far is you think this person is experienced or people. They're experienced, and this was premeditated, and that the children seem to be the focus of it all because they've left the scene with them. Yeah, think about it. How many cases we've covered where an entire family is murdered in a house? You know what I mean? Like, if you're going to go do that and to go to such lengths to, like, know everyone's activity and, and their, and, you know, how they carry on their day-to-day activities. Right. I like where you're going with this. I mean, yeah. I, Detective John. Yeah, you know what? It's it's cool. I, I love it, though. But definitely <laughs> very, very intelligent person, whoever this is. Well, I would say intelligent in their crime sprees. Well, yeah. I just don't want to give him credit. Well, I don't want to either. But, I, well, what's making me say I know that what you is, mean. is the dog. The dog it's very thing thought is, out. is well yes, thought very, out. very. The tools in which they were using. Yeah. And also, oh, it's one, not their first rodeo. One last thing. One last thing. I, th- I find it very interesting that the whatever murder weapon was used is confusing police as to what it is. I've n- like, that's very rare. That when you're looking at people's skulls or body, you don't know whether it's a stab, a puncture, or a bullet wound. We have had this happen before in um, a few other cases where the blunt force trauma to these victims' heads is so severe that it at first looks like a gunshot wound. And that just means that there was a rage within this crime. I mean, their heads were essentially bashed in yeah and that's why they were unable to determine whether it was a shotgun or blunt force trauma but that also shows a rage that this individual had yeah or or group of people i also have a question for you yes do you think it's interesting that there's spatter blood spatter and also droplets and smears and handprints like what do you think about that well that is and that that is why the deputies and they did a wonderful job in this case with the crime scene Minus stepping over the footprints that were made outside the window. That was a little (laughs) bit of a a mistake. But they saw the difference between the blood and they saw the spatter. They saw the droplets. And what we know from the Darley Routier case is that when there's droplets, it means that someone is, is standing up and bleeding downward. Or now that could be a victim or it could be the perpetrator or perpetrators standing in blood stripping off of them. So it means at one point there was some movement and some fight that took place. But the spatter is a result of what we will find out, the blunt force trauma that took place to the the heads of these victims. Okay, fair enough. Good question. I'm glad I had an answer. Thank it's, you. It's embarrassing <laughs> when I don't. <laughs> no, nah, you're okay. So Lee McKenzie was escorted back to her home. And later on that night, two detectives came back to her house and let her know that in fact her son had been one of the bodies that were found within the home. That's really sad. Yeah. In the early morning hours of May 17th, crime scene techs arrived at the house to process the scene. 
Photos were taken and then the bodies were taken to the morgue, where autopsies were performed. Mark McKenzie was 37 years old when he was murdered, and Brenda had been 40. The couple, along with Brenda's son Slade, had been bludgeoned to death by what they thought was a hammer or some other blunt instrument. They had all suffered from skull fractures and brain contusions after being bound by duct tape and or 18-inch plastic zip ties. The toxicology report stated that there were traces of THC and methamphetamines in the couple's system, but a statement was added that the extent of drug use could not be determined, meaning whether or not the couple were recreational or habitual users. Analysis of the crime scene and toxicology reports allowed the investigators to come up with some theories regarding what had taken place. First, there was no forced entry and no use of firearms. Because Mark was an avid hunter, he had many guns in various locations throughout the house, but no attempt was made to get any of them. Now, this could be because the couple either knew the person or persons that had killed them and had been caught off guard and let them in, or it was someone that they weren't threatened by, or they were taken by surprise. So there's many scenarios as to why they didn't reach for the guns. Maybe they didn't know they had to because they felt at ease, or they never had the ability to do so because they were taken by surprise. Also, in the event that they know the person, and let's say it goes from totally fine to really bad, you could still make the attempt to go grab it. But I always say, it doesn't matter if you have guns or not. If you can't reach them and they're not accessible to you, then it's not going to help your case. So, I don't know. I mean, but that can happen. It can go from a very, oh, uh, hey, what's going on, Dan? And, oh, hey, what's up? And then all of a sudden, you know, next thing you know, try to kill you. But you could still make the attempt to grab the weapon or weapons wherever you have them. Right. And now this is what the police are going to think maybe might have happened Because after questioning some family and friends and hearing that the Gronies, well, Brenda Grony and Mark McKenzie would sometimes help motorists, this did become a possibility. Like, oh, maybe they think they're just helping someone out and then boom, all of a sudden the situation changed. So that could have been a possibility. But this is something that really puzzled investigators. Taking on five people, even if two are under the age of 10, is still a difficult thing to do. So the investigators were strongly leaning towards the possibility that there was more than one person that had committed these crimes and then kidnapped the children. Like, even if it were one person took on the three of them while the other person grabbed the two children. Okay, I mean, that is a possibility. They're saying it's very difficult, I mean, for one person to do this all. Especially because, you know... You have two adults and then a 13-year-old boy. The three of them could easily overpower one person if that person didn't use the element of surprise in some way and think about who they were first going to take on. Also, something that we didn't mention yet was even though the dog, we know the thing with the dog and the treats and all that stuff, but isn't it interesting that the dog, I mean, I'm so glad dog's not harmed in this altercation that led to murder, but 
what I wonder what they if someone was like with the dog or they put the dog in a room and closed the door or something because that dog would not have just stood there like it's very interesting so that's something that you know we haven't touched upon yet yeah the the whole situation with the dog is quite interesting I mean, what we know and what the investigators know are are two totally different things because we know about the dog kind of being disarmed. Maybe the dog was put in another room, but when police did get there, the dog was roaming around the home. Right. But like like we said, you know, you could put the dog in a room and then, you know, once everything's over, you hand the dog a treat, you walk out the door and you don't lock it because it's never locked. You just leave. So I just find that very odd. It was very strange. Red flag, boop, putting it down. About the dog? Yeah, like just like with the whole situation, like how the dog not do anything okay. to the intruder or intruders. So no matter who did this or however many people did it, it was clear that it was planned. The murder weapon, duct tape, and zip ties were all brought in by the perpetrator or perpetrators. So this was a confusing scene. Many people to control. So it really just didn't seem like it could have been one person. While investigators were trying to figure out who did this and why, the Sheriff's Department organized a search for Dylan and Shasta with volunteers from the Kootenai County Search and Rescue. This was an extensive search that took place. Because the terrain surrounding the McKenzie house was so difficult to get through, the search took place on foot, horseback, and ATV. Halfway through the search, tracking dogs and cadaver dogs were brought in. And while all these ground searches were taking place, there was also a helicopter in the sky. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, you have a a multitude of different ways of searching for for two people. I mean, that's really good. Yeah. I think it's because of all of the, like, kind of like Matwins and Forest that were behind the home. So that would be kind of one way for the perpetrator to go or the kids to go also maybe this person also knows the lay of the land as well right so it's actually good that you have above you know helicopter atv everything that's awesome yeah they did kind of pull out all the stops for this yeah an amber alert was also issued for the two children and a statement was made to the media by the sheriff's department stating that the main focus of this investigation is trying to find the two missing children And that makes sense that that was the main focus of the investigation because they were the ones who were in desperate need of help right away. Yeah, just get the word out. Now, just as a side note here, there was a bit of criticism after the investigation wrapped up about how the Amber Alert system was not as effective as it should have been. There were issues with chain of command and getting the information out to law enforcement agencies in the surrounding towns and states about the missing children. So after this case, there were some changes made about um, the issuance of Amber Alerts. So that's just a side note there. While the searches were being conducted, the sheriff's detectives continued on with their investigation. The first thing they wanted to do was look into the family background. And from this, they got many leads. They learned that the home on East Frontage Road was owned by Mark McKenzie and that Brenda and her children had moved in when the couple started dating. Brenda had married Stephen Groney in 1986, when she was 21 and he was 29. Together, they had five children, 
but divorced in 2001. Their first two children were over the age of 18, so they had aged out of the custody agreement, and both did not live with either of their parents. In fact, one of their sons, 18-year-old Jesse Groney, was currently in jail awaiting sentencing for a felony burglary charge. Oh, no. Yeah. So he was definitely never on the suspect list. Okay. This meant that the joint custody agreement between Stephen and Brenda only applied to their three youngest children, Slade, Dylan, and Chasta. Brenda had owned her own business called Made to Order, and Made is spelled M-A-I-D. She would bring her children to a daycare facility while she cleaned people's homes in the area. However, she made the decision with Mark that owning her own business and being the sole employee was very demanding and was taking away from time with her children. So they agreed that she was going to stop working and she would be home full time because it was the best decision to make for their family. And Mark agreed with her about this. At the time, Brenda was on probation for possession of drug paraphernalia. She had served some jail time and was ordered to attend drug and alcohol rehab counseling for her charges. Now, before we get any further, I just want to address the drug issues in this case. Because I know what you are all thinking. John, I know you're probably thinking the same thing, like major red flags here with the toxicology report and the fact that Brenda was on probation. And that's what the police thought, too, at first, especially when they learned that Brenda and Mark were associated with some men who were involved in motorcycle clubs, as was Stephen Groney. So I just want to dispel some things right off the bat so they don't distract us from the true investigation. It would later be determined by police that Mark and Brenda were recreational pot smokers. The methamphetamines in their system was something that would confuse their families. When the media got a hold of the fact that drugs were found in their system by the toxicology report, they would run with this information and accuse the couple of being involved in the dangerous world of drug dealing. However, Mark's family will come out and say that he was not a habitual drug user. His brother, who had dropped his child off that weekend that Mark was killed, would say that he trusted his brother, trusted him enough to leave his child there, and that Mark's job was very demanding, as he was a supervisor, and his boss above him was really demanding. So he would have never even put up with the smallest indication that Mark was using drugs. Now, Brenda's other son, her eldest, Vance, would come out and say that he did leave the McKenzie home because he was not okay with the drug use, but he was referring to the marijuana use, not meth. Police concluded early on in the investigation that the couple, Brenda and Mark, were not addicts, nor do they owe anyone money. And it is likely that maybe one of the people at the barbecue may have had some meth that the couple did try. Now, in no way am I also saying that this is something that I condone, especially in the presence of children. However, it was ruled that it had nothing to do with this case. So I just wanted to kind of get that out there. I'm sure that Brenda and Mark were not perfect and they definitely weren't doing the right thing when it came to illegal drug use, but it had nothing to do with their murder or Slade's or the kidnapping of Dylan and Shasta. So it's just something I wanted to kind of get out there on the table. 
No, totally. Because you know, you got to think like sometimes when we hear cases like this, some details we can kind of get hooked on, and then we can't almost forget it. You know, you can't see anything else because you're only looking at one specific detail to this case. Also, let's be real. If they were in deep with a motorcycle club or or any other thing, a dealer for that matter, you wouldn't be killed. You know, <laughs> I don't think you would be killed. Uh, you and know. then your children kidnapped. Exactly. Because, look, at the end of the day, if you're hooked on some sort of drugs, you know, not, not to say that they were, but if you're hooked on drugs, they're going to want your business. They're not going to want to kill you over it. And they're not going to take your kids. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, they would. I mean, they probably, eh, maybe. If you owe them a lot of money, they might kill you. <laughs> maybe I'm being too, <laughs> maybe I'm being too generous here. Yeah, you're being. But whatever. My point is, is that they wouldn't take the kids. I don't know. I don't think we should associate that. Because I feel like that's just a cop out, like an easy way the of looking at it. drug use was definitely bad. Yeah. But it was ruled early on by investigators that it had Nothing to do with the case. Yeah, it had no bearing on the case. I yeah. get it. Oh, by the way, a little side note for our audience. I apologize. My chair is super squeaky. So <laughs> every time I move, it like squeaks. So this needs WD-40 after the episode. And you have to sit still. Yeah, I know. I get a little animated sometimes, yeah. guys. <laughs> okay. So now let's talk about the children. Slade was described as a wonderful young man. He was an honor roll student at the local middle school. And he had a real talent for music, which he loved to do. And he was into woodworking, which is so interesting, but it shows that at a very young age, he had a strong artistic ability and a lot of patience, which a lot of 13-year-old boys do not have. Yeah, right. He did nice things like mowing the lawn for the neighbors all the time. And from what I could gather, he really had a hand in taking care of his younger siblings. Dylan was a typical nine-year-old boy who loved to play outside and was really into sports. Eight-year-old Shasta, although surrounded by a house full of hunters, fishers, and a lot of brothers, loved dressing up and playing with dolls. A real girly girl is how one of her older brothers described her. Strong in her beliefs and personality. The murder of Slade and the disappearance of Dylan and Shasta hit the community hard. The students at the local elementary and middle schools were devastated by the news. And as a response, the schools had grief counselors on hand. It was senseless, and the parents of the children's friends had a very difficult time convincing their own children that they were safe. The investigators also found out, talking to the family of the victims, that there was a trailer on the property that Brenda and Mark would sometimes let people in need stay at but currently there was no one living there. Then, upon searching the white pickup truck that the neighbor found on his property and called the sheriff's department about, they found a wadded-up piece of duct tape that matched the duct tape that the victims were bound in. So detectives theorized that the children were most likely placed in the white truck and then driven from the McKenzie property to the location where the white truck currently sat on Hollingsworth's property. And based on tire tracks, it appears that there was another vehicle parked there that then left from that location. So Shasta and Dylan were brought to another vehicle and then driven away. That's interesting. Or, and um, this is something that's going to come up a little bit later on in the investigation. Another theory that they had also was that 
maybe Shasta and Dylan just saw what happened to Slade and Mark and their mother, and then they ran. So they were there's two scenarios here. Either the people or person kind of went from one car to another and booked it, or they kidnapped the kids. Like they were thinking maybe the kids just ran away because they were scared and didn't return to the house because they thought the man would come back or the men would come back that did this. So they're thinking maybe they they either left with the children or left without the children. But either way, they drove the white pickup truck from the McKenzie house to the second location and left in another car with or without the children, potentially. Maybe. I, I mean, just like everything else, it's a possibility. Yeah. The first person of interest came up when the detectives started looking into people that attended Mark and Brenda's barbecue. It had come back that the man in question owed the couple $2,000. He had been at the barbecue and had a criminal record. He also left the area, something that violated his probation. However, once the man found out that there was a warrant issued for his arrest, he turned himself in and spoke with the police about the case. Jesse, Brenda's son, who had been questioned about this man as well, said that it wouldn't have been him. And the detectives were inclined to believe this as well. And he was released, and they were back to square one. But soon after they had let their first suspect go, detectives were relieved to find out that they were being aided in the investigation by the FBI. Because of the magnitude of this case, and the fact that two children were missing, The FBI was now involved, and the resources of this department in this investigation were going to be invaluable. On top of that, they also had assistance from agents from the Idaho State Police. A tip line had been set up, and for once we're going to hear something positive about a tip line. Many parents of children that had been friends with the three grony children called to tell investigators all the spots the kids would play in the woods. And this greatly aided in the search efforts, but unfortunately, nothing had been recovered. Law enforcement had two theories about the children at this point, and this goes to what I was just telling you. One was that they had been kidnapped, and the truck that had been used to transport the children um, was the white truck, and it drove to another vehicle, which they were now in. But if that's the case, and it did come back that the white pickup truck was stolen, the perpetrators or perpetrator may have stolen a, another car at this point. So that's something they were nervous about. And the second theory was that maybe this was just a getaway location for the two vehicles. And maybe the children hadn't been harmed in the commission of the murders that Brenda and Mark were the targets maybe. And Slade had tried to intervene and that's why he was murdered. But maybe the two children witnessed or saw this and ran into the woods to hide because they were scared. Maybe. But you would. how old's the oldest one that's missing? Nine. Yeah, I guess. And I she's eight. I don't know. I mean, I think you would eventually try to come back to the house or somewhere where you're familiar with, right? Well, not if you just watched your stepfather and mother get murdered and your older brother. I mean, that's pretty traumatizing for a nine and eight year old. I just think that the people that did this or person wouldn't just let them go. I just, I I don't see that being something that happens. Right. They would either be murdered in that house as well or taken. 
Now, don't forget, investigators don't know that this person was watching the house. So they were thinking potentially that they might not have even known the children were there. Okay, right. But we know that little tidbit. Or <laughs> or potentially that they had not intended to murder the children at all, but Slade had surprised them or tried to stop the murder. Right. Because what was different about Slade at the crime scene was that his feet were not bound. So, and it was a little bit more haphazard. Like, the duct tape that was found around, like, Slade's head was even wrapped in duct tape. Like, it was something a little bit more chaotic about his murder versus um, the controlling of Mark and Brenda. Okay. Either way, all of the evidence found at the scene was sent to the FBI processing labs. And a reward was issued for the safe return of the children or information leading to their safe return. And that reward was for $100,000. Now, would this even be a true crime podcast if we didn't talk about the fact that it could have been the (laughs) ex-husband? That's very true. I didn't even, like, not that I didn't think about it, but I didn't want to put it out there. But, I mean, I guess you're right. I mean, it is a possibility, right? Well, especially because Brenda is sharing custody of her children with the two that had been abducted or were not present at the scene. And we know that, you know, kind of statistically with child abductions, it's most likely a family member that's responsible for a crime. Uh, And on top of that, even more likely that it's the parent that there's a custody agreement with. But why, if it was him, though, why would... My argument to that would be, well, then why did he kill his 13-year-old son? Right. Or uh, Unless he it was like a, a for-hire thing, and like we said, Slade got involved and he wasn't supposed to, but it happened by accident. Or if it was the father, it does then it does make sense in the way that he was handled differently than the other two. Yeah. By the wrapping of the head, maybe he didn't want to see the kid while he did it. Maybe. It's a possibility, and that's why it's it's different than the other victims in the house. Or he hired someone to do it. Or he hired someone. Either way. Well, it's been estimated that only 1% of missing children's cases per year are committed by a stranger. I mean, that's a pretty crazy statistic. Yeah. Um, And most likely, it's usually a family member. And of the cases that it's been a family member that has taken the children, 86% of the time it's a male family member. That's very scary, actually. So investigators were very interested in Stephen Groney, which makes sense. They have to do their job, right? Yeah. Three days after he had learned that his ex-wife and middle child had been murdered and his two youngest children were missing, Stephen Groney made an emotional plea to the media. While surrounded by friends and family, he said, please, please, please. Release my children safely. They had nothing to do with any of this. Release them in a safe area where law enforcement can find them. Call the helpline and let us know where they are. Now, investigators who watched on thought these statements were a little strange. What did he mean when he said they had nothing to do with this? Did he know something that they didn't? And according to family members and Stephen himself, he had gotten into an argument with Brenda recently about wanting to take the kids for an unscheduled weekend, something that Brenda had said no to him about. It does sound like that would be a very odd thing to say. 
But, you know, I don't know. People just do things, you know, they say and do things in the moment. And it's because of what's going on that leads them to say that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine this is a very emotionally charged time for this man. Yeah, that's like the same. That would be the same thing as if, like, you know, you're being interrogated and you and you say something or, you know, that you wouldn't normally say. But it's because you're being interrogated for whatever. You know what you're I mean? You're under emotional you're, distress. Yeah, some people don't even, you know, have any emotion during um, an, an interrogation or, or whatever it might be. So, I don't know. Maybe. Well, it would have been really convenient for detectives and FBI agents if Stephen had been the one to commit these crimes. It would have made their jobs really easy. But they knew that the job they had laid out in front of them was not an easy one. And they were good investigators, and they would not take the easy way out. After looking into Stephen's background, checking out his alibi, and interviewing those who knew him, and observing his behavior, they ruled him out as a suspect. They did this instead of getting hyper-focused on him, something that has misled other investigations in other cases. They knew that it had not been Stephen, so they moved on. It was clear that this man was nothing short of devastated by what had happened to his family. So that is not to say that he totally helped with the investigation either. Stephen Groney, with Good intentions, I am sure, because at the end of the day, I cannot judge a man for his actions when he's trying to cope with the loss of one of his children and the disappearance of two others, went on the show At Large, which was hosted by none other than Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo. He's always there. On that show, he revealed that the FBI had not thought that he had been truthful at first. He spoke of his argument with Brenda on May 13th and that he had suspected that at one point his ex-wife and her current boyfriend had been using meth and heard rumors that they were doing it again. So this is something that kind of fueled that media rumor of them being involved in the world of meth. Yeah, meth again. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe there was multiple times that it took place, but... No, maybe it did. Maybe it did. He also admitted that he had a past of very heavy drug use himself, but currently he was only drinking alcohol. Also, a fun fact here that we learned on this show, Steve Groney actually lived with Brenda's mother, his ex-mother-in-law. Really? Yeah, isn't that an interesting fact? I mean, that is. I mean, your mom's cool. I mean, I, I, would, I would take care of your mom. If we got divorced? Yeah, sure. And you accused I mean, I, me I and my new get... boyfriend of Matthews. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, I'm just saying your mom's one of those type of people. I wouldn't mind. She's the coolest. Yeah, she's she's. Shout nice. out, mom. <laughs> so Stephen Groney had set up his own tip line in this investigation. And he offered up his motorcycle, which had a value of $25,000. So he was doing the best that he could to desperately get back his children. So Vance, Brenda's eldest son, would come out and say that his mother's drug use was recreational and it was always evident when she was or wasn't high. He would go on to say that he, like the police, did not believe their occasional use of drugs had anything to do with the crimes. And he also said that he thought the killer and the abductor was someone that the family had to have been familiar with. Otherwise, their dog would have gone nuts. 
So, I mean, this is something that we know is that the, um, the perpetrator perpetrators found their way around this. Right. Exactly. Through studying the family. Just about a week after the discovery of the bodies and abductions, more investigators joined the team. The addition of more crime scene texts and behavioral profilers brought the number of people working this case up to 150. That's a lot of people. Yeah. You got to think they have a lot of like funding. They have the state police. They have the FBI. And the county sheriff's department. County sheriff's department. You have a lot of people here that the best in their field. I mean, this is good. Yes. This is very good. So they were able to get the name of all of the people that had been at the barbecue that was held by the couple that day. Everyone was interviewed and released. Everyone reported that things had been normal and that neither Brenda or Mark seemed to be troubled by anything. Mark's brother, who had seen him on Saturday and then again for the barbecue on Sunday, said that he had helped him unload firewood and that the two had been alone, so Mark had the chance to talk to him if he'd wanted to. But Mark didn't reveal anything to him or mention anything about having problems with anyone. He said that Mark was just talking about renting movies for the kids once everyone left. You know, can we actually put a red flag in the brother right now? Okay. You, you're calling red flag? I'm calling a red flag. Could be totally wrong. Okay. But I'm going to say it. Because let's just go with the eldest son with his theory that okay. it's somebody that the family knows. This would be a very good one. And the fact that he was there. Okay. Maybe, just maybe, he's a person of interest. Person of interest. Person of interest. Not saying that he is the guy. Maybe he's orchestrating it. Never know. Okay. Finally, the investigators received some lab results back from the samples that they sent in. And it was actually pretty good news. The blood at the crime scene was tested, and it only belonged to the three murder victims. This meant that none of the blood at the scene belonged to Dylan or Shasta, which fueled the hope that the children would be found alive. Next, investigators sifted through 40 tons of garbage at local landfills in hopes of finding a murder weapon or more evidence. However, they came up empty-handed. In statements to the press, law enforcement agencies stated that they had conducted over 700 interviews and followed up on over 1,700 tips, but nothing had been found. They believed that the killings were premeditated and that the killer or killers were highly emotional during the commission of the crime. There were, of course, specific details that the police knew regarding the crime scene that they had not released to the press. In every investigation this is done, the police don't release everything because they want to use it to determine whether or not they have the right suspect. But what they revealed about the crime scene, showing that the killer or killers were in a highly emotional state, was new and was something that had been suggested to them by the agents of the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI. This was a crime committed by someone who had felt personally wronged in some way. Now, this puzzled investigators because they kept thinking that the victims, Brenda and Mark, did not have enemies. They didn't owe anyone money. But what they weren't thinking about was the grand scheme of things. 
Maybe the person or people that committed this crime was angry at the world or themselves. But shortly after this interview with the media, the investigators would get an unexpected massive break in the case. On July 2nd, 48 days into the investigation, at 1.30 a.m., a man driving a red Jeep Cherokee drove into a Denny's parking lot in Coeur d'Alene, located on Interstate 90. He parked the car and got a disheveled and unkempt little girl out of the passenger seat. This was all observed by two young men, 21-year-old Nick Chapman and 18-year-old Chris Donlin. It was odd that a father would take his daughter out to eat at 1.30 in the morning. So later Chapman would say that he had a horrible feeling about this man as soon as he got out of the Jeep. But as the man and the little girl passed him, the feeling he had got even worse. He knew her. Just before they had pulled into the Denny's, he, Donlin, and both of their girlfriends passed a large billboard. The billboard had two pictures on it. They were the pictures of missing siblings, Shasta and Dylan Groney. They were so young, and the story had been all over the news. And that was her. She just passed him. The missing little girl. That's crazy. But now what? What do you do? What are you going to (laughs) do? Well, as the two boys realized what was happening, they panicked slightly. Donlin texted his girlfriend and told her what was going on. They told each other, the two boys in the parking lot, that they wouldn't let the man leave with the little girl. When she got the text, her and Chapman's girlfriend, who were still sitting within the Denny's, the two had went out to have a smoke break, looked over at the man and girl that had chosen a corner booth about six tables away from them. It was her, they told each other. They texted the boys back, and they came up with a plan. Chapman was going to call the police, and then they were going to walk back in the restaurant so nothing looked suspicious, and wait for police to arrive. But if he tried to leave, the man that was with the little girl, they would have to stop him. Before they called police, Chapman wrote down the license plate number of the Jeep, just in case the man did get away. It was very smart. Good job. But the call that Nick Chapman placed to 911 was not the first call that came in. The second the man and girl sat down and their waitress started talking to them, 25-year-old Amber Dean, she knew something was wrong. The man was hyper-focused on the little girl and she seemed terrified. She was scared to talk and even checked with him if it was okay if she could use the crayons that Amber had tried to give her. She acted normal, but she knew what was going on. There was a missing poster in the foyer of the restaurant. Amber saw it every day when she came to work. A poster that was no longer there, by the way, because when the man walked in with Jasta, he saw it and ripped it down and placed it in his pocket. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Okay. Amber acted normal, but went in and told her shift manager that the missing girl from the posters was there, Shasta, and they had to call the police. Both women placed the call to 911. The shift manager noted the time. It was 1.51 a.m. Dispatch told both callers, Amber and Chapman, 
to act normal and that police were on their way. The calls had come in within four minutes of each other. I think that goes to show that these like media campaigns when it comes to missing children are really important because they were able to notice that that was Shasta Groni based on all of the posters and billboards that they saw. Yeah, it does work. Nick Chapman and Chris Donlin went back to their booth and alerted the waitress as to what was going on. But she reassured them that she knew too and had also called the police. An agonizing 10 minutes passed before the first sheriff's car arrived. With his lights off, he turned into the parking lot. The man might have seen the car. He might not have. But either way, he took the girl back towards the bathrooms and returned back shortly. Several minutes later, the officers walked into the restaurant and approached the man. They asked the little girl what her name was. Scared, she looked at the man she was with. He nodded his head, as if he knew it was all over, and she told them, Shasta Groni. The man was then asked to stand up so he could be taken into custody. He did so without a fight. But before he stood up completely, he leaned over and whispered something to Shasta. We still don't know what he said. He was taken in without incident, and the waitress, Amber, went over to the eight-year-old girl and hugged her as she sobbed. I want my daddy, she said. I want to go home. An ambulance came for Shasta to take her to a nearby hospital, while the man she had been with was headed to jail. That is, I mean, this is wonderful. This is the best thing, at least, you know, that she's there. She's safe. and Except one thing. Except, yeah, the brother. <laughs> Where's Dylan? Yeah. Stephen Groney had just driven from Idaho to Seattle to visit his sister. He had been there for about an hour when he got a call from one of the detectives working his children's missing persons case. He heard the words that he'd been praying to hear. We got her. We found Shasta. He was overjoyed, relief washing over him. But then it quickly creeped back up. What about Dylan? He was told that only Shasta had been found with the man that they suspected had been her abductor in the Denny's in town. And he told him that he would be headed back right away. Stephen told his family and they were overcome with happiness. Knowing that he was exhausted from just having made the journey, one of his family members offered to drive him back home. Detectives found out that the man that had been with Shasta was 42-year-old Joseph Edmund Duncan III. He was a 42-year-old fugitive sex offender from Fargo, North Dakota. He was initially charged with two counts of first-degree kidnapping. And while some detectives looked into his history, Others went to the hospital to speak with Shasta. They asked her many things about where she had been for seven weeks, what the man's name was who had held her captive, and also if there had been others. They knew to wait on questions about her time with Duncan, and knowing what they did know about what he was on probation for, they assumed that that seven-week time had been horrific. Shasta told them that she had been at some kind of camp in Montana. She knew that because she had been shown a map. The man told her his name was Jet Duncan, 
She didn't want to talk about Dylan, but maybe he was at the camp. They had asked her what Duncan was going to do with her, and she said he was going to let me go. And when they asked her why, she said, he told me that I taught him how to love. Very strange. Okay. Now, Joseph Duncan has a very dark past. Through a lot of heavy investigative work, detectives and FBI agents were able to discover the following facts. But before we get into them, I want to tell you that they are very graphic, and they involve the rapes of children and incidents of incest. This information was also collected over the span of the investigation into Duncan, so it was something that was slowly unraveled over time. Joseph Duncan was born on February 25, 1963, in Tacoma, Washington. He stated his first sexual experience was initiated by his sisters and went on for some time. He was eight years old. At the age of 12, he committed his first sexual assault against a five-year-old boy. At 15, he raped a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint. When he was 15, he was also involved in a high-speed chase with police while driving a stolen vehicle. He crashed the car while trying to run through a roadblock and damaged the right side of his face, something that had to be repaired with surgery. He was then sent to the Dislin Boys Ranch in Tacoma, where he said that he raped 13 boys and sexually assaulted six more. Now, I just want to add as a side note here that in 2018, the state of Washington had to pay $22 million to 51 men who came forward and talked about their time at the ranch. They said the counselors knew that there was sexual abuse and physical assaults taking place daily amongst the boys at the ranch. When they tried to report such incidents, they were told, you have to take care of yourself. This is the law of the jungle at the boys ranch. And that was in the 80s and 90s. So you can only imagine what a predator like Duncan got away with there in the 70s and how it only made his future crimes worse. That's insane. I feel like we can cover an entire show on the ranch alone. Uh, yes, we could. Oh my it's gosh. It's horrific. That's crazy. Um, and sometimes it's facilities like this or even prisons where people go in and sometimes come out, out worse than they were going in. Yeah. In 1980, he was sent to prison for raping a 14-year-old boy at gunpoint. He was 16. For this, he was admitted to the Western State Hospital's Sexual Psychopath Program, where he was deemed to not be amendable to treatment. He was incurable. Um, While he was staying there, he was given a pass to visit relatives, and while he was on that pass, he was caught peeping through windows and masturbating in public. Um, Because of that, he was transferred to the Department of Corrections. And that was in 1980. So he was scheduled to be released in 1987. But because of various infractions that he committed while in prison, and because he could not find acceptable resources in which to live and work, he was denied parole in 1987. Two years later, in 1989, he was transferred to a more open facility where his behavior could be um, monitored and potentially modified. And in 1991, he started a pen pal relationship with a King County revenue officer 
a man named David Wolfert. And there's a reason that I'm mentioning this. Okay. Keep that in the back burner. Also in 1991, he was found guilty of uh, attempting to have child pornography sent to him. So his mail had been withheld for um, a certain amount of time as a punishment. Okay. So he's still committing his crimes, basically, from in prison. This guy has been horrible. Oh, my God. I don't even have words. Well, there's there's zero signs of rehabilitation or even attempts to rehabilitate himself. Wow. In 1992, he was found ineligible for parole, but that decision was reversed two months later. In 1993, Duncan tried to convince David Wolfert, basically... Joseph Duncan kind of goes back and forth with his with his sexuality. And at this time, he had told many of his psychologists that he wanted like he was identifying as being gay. And he entered kind of into a a relationship with David Wolfert, but only through mail. But they did like talk about many sexual things and that they loved each other. So that was um, he kind of groomed this man into thinking that, oh, I'm in love with you. I want to be with you. Um, and it really was only for the sole purpose in 1993 when he's trying to convince him because of his status as a King County Revenue Officer to alter official documents to misrepresent the crimes that he had actually committed. So he wanted David Wolfer to kind of erase from his record the fact that he's a sex offender oh okay yeah it's very complicated the the many different scams that he was running and how he kind of like altered how he felt and who he was based on what he was trying to do okay it's a master manipulator as well and you know that's something that's going to be a really big deal moving forward because later on with megan's law So he was released from prison in 1994 at the age of 31. He had been in prison at that point for 14 years. So most of his life, almost half of his life, he's been imprisoned. Yeah. In 1996, he violated parole when he was caught with marijuana and a firearm. And for this, he had to do 30 days in jail. In 1997, he had nine violations of his parole, uh, one of which was contact with children. So this this guy just kind of kept it up. Yeah. But something serious just happened during this time. Megan's law had been signed into effect. And Megan Kanka's case we covered in episode 27 um, resulted in the fact that sex offenders had to register when they moved to new towns and they couldn't live within certain vicinities of um, schools, parks, any places where children are going to gather. So Duncan had to register as a sex offender, especially because he was a class three sex offender. And that was something he did not do. Because of this, he was arrested by the FBI in 1997. He was released from prison in 2000. And at that point, he enrolled at North Dakota State University and majored in computer programming. Um, Many people, you know, reference the fact that Duncan is a very intelligent person. Um, He did later get jobs in computer programming. 
In 2003, he was questioned by Fargo police officers about his harassment of some women in town, but he denied it and was never charged. Um, the women didn't want to follow through with that. And actually, one of the women that he harassed ended up being his lawyer in a later case. And once the lawyer found out that he had harassed his daughter at one point, he was shocked. Harassed the lawyer's daughter. The lawyer's daughter. Isn't that like, kind of like Cape Fear kind of? Well, like, he, it was kind of more of a coincidence that it was her. Not, oh, okay. He didn't seek her out because of the okay. fact. Yeah. All right. And he was a defense lawyer. But Cape Fear, good movie. Great movie. Both of them. In January of 2004, um, Joseph Duncan starts a blog in which he calls The Fifth Nail. The Fifth Nail is in reference to, you know, like the four nails that were used to uh, nail Jesus Christ to the cross. And this is the reference to like the fifth nail that was supposedly created and was supposed to have like powers. Oh, okay. So this is yeah. getting a little, uh, little dark. Yeah. A little... Um. In what I am assuming he's using it in reference to is within the blog, he's very vocal about the fact that he doesn't believe that it's fair that sex offenders have to register like they're basically being nailed to the cross. So that's the reason why I believe he uses that. Oh, okay. Police also find Joseph Duncan's resume online. They found that he lied and stated that he had been working at times where he really had been in prison for the rape of the 14-year-old boy that he committed when he was 16. Within the blog, The Fifth Nail, which is still up, unfortunately, he discusses how he opposed registration laws for sex offenders. Duncan is a vile human being, and, I mean, if we can even call him a human being, that doesn't deserve for us to go over his ridiculous ramblings in that blog. Because that's not what we really strive to do on this podcast. Our platform is not to give a platform for men like Duncan to have their blogs being read. So we're going to skip reading the blog posts. Um, I'm sure we can kind of guesstimate how bad it is. Oh my God. Well, yeah, terrible. But the one thing that I do feel is important to know in regards to the writings that are seen on that website is um, a growing agitation where he says that the demons are beginning to take over and that Happy Jet is gone. And if you remember, that's the name that he told Shasta. Like he said his name was Jet Duncan. So he has this like Happy Jet, but then the demons take over. And as the time from... January of 2004 till we get to May of 2005 when these crimes were committed you can see in his writings and ramblings it becomes more disturbing so he was totally shifting okay so in fact investigators later learned that the Gronies had not been his first choice in April and May of 2005 Duncan had been spending time observing other families and a remote daycare center in Montana. He had a makeshift campsite set up in the Lolo National Forest where he had children's toys and a camera set up on a tripod. He had his location now, so next he just needed victims. In his travels to the, to the Wolf Lodge to kind of look for children, 
That's where he noticed Shasta and Dylan when they were playing in the gravel driveway in their bathing suits. And that's when he started stalking the family. Oh, so he kind of just saw them and just kind of stuck to them. Yeah. So what he did was premeditated and planned, but who the victims were, that was completely at random. Okay. Now, it's crazy. When we went over the statistics, you know, 1% of child abductions are strangers. And here here it was, you know. Yeah. It's truly every parent's worst nightmare. Yeah, it's true. And also, like, like you just said, 1%. Well, it's even at 1%, the possibility is that it's it could happen. Yeah, considering that 2,300 children go missing every single day, 1% is still a terrifying amount. Yeah. So now as they were reading the blog and figuring all of this out, they came to the sickening realization. Duncan had lived in many places. He was a violent offender. This plan was very well thought out, what he did to the Groney family and Mark McKenzie. Maybe he was possibly responsible for more crimes. Like you said, this did not seem like his first go of things. No, definitely not. There were a few crimes that detectives thought they could link to Duncan. Um, Duncan lived in various places throughout the United States, so they really tried to create a timeline for Duncan about where he was and if there were any similar crimes that were committed involving children when he was in a specific location. But as you can imagine, that took a lot of time. So, you know, there was a lot of crimes they were trying to connect to him And there was one crime in particular, the murder of two half-sisters. Duncan actually confessed to killing the two girls um, whose bodies were later found. Two years later, they'd gone missing. They lived in a hotel and they'd gone missing because they went to the mark. They went to the store to get cigarettes for their brother and they never came home. Two years later, um, fragments of their bones were found. Now, Duncan confessed to killing these two young girls, but they were later found, this was later found to be a false confession. They know that he didn't commit these crimes because he wasn't, um, even though the bodies were found in the town he was living in, it couldn't have been him. Okay. You think maybe he's just trying to take credit for it? Yeah, and that's something that we, we noticed, like the notoriety of it all, the attention, it happens. People confess to things, especially um, these prolific. I mean, at this point, we do know he's a serial rapist. So he's prolific in his crimes and attention seems to be something that he knows he's caught. So why not get all the attention? Yeah. Um, however, all of the crimes that they thought could be a possibility. There was one that stuck out to them, and this was the murder of 10 year old Anthony Martinez. On April 4th, 1997, Anthony had been playing with his younger brother and several friends in an alley behind their home. When a man approached the boys, he offered them money to help them find his cat. When the boys started to approach him, he grabbed for Anthony's brother and he got a hold of him. When this happened, the other boys ran away. Anthony's brother was able to get away from the man 
but as soon as he had lost his grip on that boy, he grabbed Anthony. And then he pulled out a knife and forced the 10-year-old boy into a 1986 Chrysler New Yorker. Anthony's brother reported the car to police and described the man who had taken his brother. But Anthony would not be found alive. The boy's naked body was found, bound, 15 days later in a shallow grave in a remote area just east of Palm Springs. His body had been bound by duct tape, one piece of which had a partial print on it. Because the FBI agents suspected that maybe Duncan could have been responsible, they compared his prints to the partial prints on the duct tape, and they were a match. This guy is unbelievable. He's... And you have to think, okay, so that was in 1997. Um, They also knew another connection they made was at the time he was dating a woman who had a 1986 Chrysler New Yorker. So he had used his girlfriend's car in the commission of this crime. Oh, fantastic. So that was another connection that they made. It wasn't just the partial prints that connected him, but you can't tell me that that was the first time that he killed someone. Or even if it was that from 1997 to 2005, that he never committed any more rapes or murders. Yeah, no way. And he did. Yeah. This is, he's a serial killer. But now what is really worrying me right now in this point of the story is that the one thing that is kind of constant is that he's go, he goes after boys. Yeah. And he kills them. So now what's going on with the brother? I wonder now if uh, he has met a very similar fate. Yeah. And that's going to be the really upsetting part, you know? And, um, yeah, we'll get into like his predilections. A little bit later, but he, um, yeah, seems to have this history because even all the, what he had gone to jail for were the rape of two boys. And then he also raped the boys at the ranch, like the boys home that he was in. So you're right. It seems that Dylan might have been the. Right. The the intended target. Yeah. And also you got to think too, like when he was trying to take credit, for that other thing, it doesn't make sense because that's not his M.O. to go after women. No. So. so let's return to the Groney case. Detectives and FBI agents wanted to take things slow with Shasta. From what they had found out, they knew that this poor girl was most likely traumatized. But what they did need to know was what had happened to Dylan and if he was still alive. They feared that Dylan had not survived the kidnapping. And those fears were confirmed the more they talked to Shasta about it. She told them that he was no longer alive. And using what she told them about the location of the campsite, they began searching for the area where he had been held. Eventually, it is through the testimony a detective gives to a judge to determine probable cause to charge Duncan with first-degree kidnapping. The detective is able to reiterate what Shasta has told him in order to protect the victim from having to give this testimony herself. And the tale is a brutal one. Duncan told Shasta many details about the crimes he committed against her family. 
He told her about watching her house and the family, the back door being open, and the bribing of the family's dog. She said that on the night of the murders, she had woken up to her mother yelling her name from the living room. She ran out to see what was happening, and that was when she first saw Duncan. When she ran out, she said that Slade, her mother, and stepfather were already bound. She said that Duncan had a long gun with him, presumably a shotgun. So we still don't know to this day what happened between those points. We know that Duncan got into the house because the back door was open, but when the story picks up, Shasta just walks out and sees everyone already bound. So we don't know in what order he did so, but he was able to bind the three members of the family. Right. Now I understand that he did have a shotgun with him, so presumably he like bound the adults first because they were most threatening to him. Joseph Duncan himself is not like a formidable figure. I mean, he is pretty tall. He's just about six feet, 150 pounds. He is lanky. So, I mean, it must have been an element of surprise. Otherwise, they most likely would have been able to take take him down. Yeah. Well, you got to think whenever you're in the presence of someone that has a firearm that's not, um, not afraid to use it, I mean, you kind of... That's kind of where this control comes from. Remember, the police were kind of trying to figure out, well, how did someone just come in and like kind of yeah. keep five people at bay? At bay, and that's that's what it is. You know, it could be as simple as you know, move, you know, move again, and I'm gonna kill this person, or do what I say, or I'll kill this one. You know, like yeah, it's very easy to control when you have a weapon and you're not afraid to use it. Because and he's done it before, and now that we know that it's him, I can kind of piece that together, like he would put guns to people's heads and then sexually assault them. So this isn't out of the realm of like, oh, the what scope he of has what done. he can, you know, can do. Yeah. He also could have potentially hit them um, with the hammer once, knocked them out, and then bound them. To be to be honest, he could have even have used the butt of the shotgun, if, you know, if anything. That's true. And just, you know, beat them down with be- it. You because know? it wasn't reported that they had any... They were only bound when Shasta saw them. Like, there were no wounds. Right. So, once this happened, um, Shasta came out to the cries of her mother. Duncan then bound her and Dylan and carried them out to the white pickup truck in their driveway. Okay. In the bed of the truck, he put them. So, Duncan had then gone back inside. At one point, she heard her stepfather scream out in pain, but then it was quiet again. Then at one point, her brother Slade had wandered out of the house. Shasta was eight years old when she witnessed this and then later explained it. So she's going to do so as an eight-year-old would explain these things. And she described it as Slade walking out of the house, but he was brain dead, she said. So what we can assume from the crime scene and kind of like you said, John, with all the different um, like blood patterns in the house. That Slade, now we know his whole head was covered with duct tape. He'd been struck in the head and he was bleeding profusely, but his feet were not bound. So when Duncan was killing his mother and stepfather, Slade tried to get out of the house, but because he had a 
severe head trauma and he was bleeding profusely, blood got all over the place. Right. So the handprints and the footprints, they come from Slade getting trying to get out of the house and like being disoriented because A, he couldn't see because the duct tape was over his head and he had been knocked out almost and Duncan going after him. Okay. So that's why all that's why it looked the way it did in the front entryway. Which makes sense. Yeah. So Shasta said her brother had tried to escape, but Duncan was able to get him back in the house. It's pretty sad. Yeah. Another piece of evidence that corroborated Shasta's story was the fact that Slade's feet had not been bound, like I said earlier. Hmm. So that's why he was able to get out. Okay. Duncan then drove the white pickup truck to another location where he switched to the red Jeep. At the campsite, she said that Duncan showed her and Dylan the weapon that he had used to kill her family. It was a hammer. And she said that she remembered that on the hammer, it said Fat Max. The investigators were able to match the Fat Max hammer to the tool markings on the victim's skull. It had been the murder weapon. Okay, so it was a hammer. Yeah, and everything is matching up about what Shasta is saying. It's just crazy. She is also a very intelligent young girl for remembering these things and, you know. Well, unfortunately, she probably can't. Not remember. Yeah, these images are like burned in her mind, you know. Shasta had also explained what happened while they were at the campsite. Duncan repeatedly sexually assaulted and raped them. These attacks were pictured and videotaped. He had shown her the videos and pictures of her brother being assaulted, and at times they had to watch each other's attacks. She said that eventually Duncan ended up beating her brother um, with a large stick and burning him with cigarettes. Then he killed him by shooting him with a shotgun. Oh, my God. After that hearing, Duncan was most definitely charged with two counts of first-degree kidnapping, And it was made very clear from a judge that more charges were coming, so he would be held without bail. Investigators were shown by Shasta on a map where the campsites were, in which, you know, they had been held. And it was there in the Bitterroot Mountains that they found the remains of nine-year-old Dylan Groney. Very sad. Stephen Groney was devastated by this. And all he said was that, Slade and Dylan were with their mother now. Oh, it's just so sickening. I mean, it is. It's it's unimaginable, you know, like what those kids must have gone through and all the other ones in the past as well. Yeah. You know, to this guy, you know. What they're thinking, you know, when you do a psychological profile of Duncan is that it seems like he has a predilection for uh, prepubescent children. And based on what happened with Shasta... And what we don't know about what he did with other victims is that, you know, it it's not really whether it's a male or female child. It's just that they're prepubescent. Okay. Um, and it's just so sad. And really, of course, this was a big case. So, you know, the media was really going to be invested in it, especially when it comes to a child being missing for seven weeks and then being found. But the media quickly, when it came to the trial phase and the finding of evidence, I found became very exploitative. 
the videotapes that Duncan took of Shasta and Dylan uh, were in the hands of the prosecution and defense teams. And they just kept reporting, oh, we've seen the tapes. And, you know, every news entity basically said, we've seen the tapes and this is what's on them. And it was more shocking and horrible than the next account. So it was kind of like they were just exploiting what had happened to these children, one of which is still alive and trying to cope with the trauma that she had gone through. And they were just making it ridiculous. Yeah. It was I, very sad. Yeah. Like, you, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm never going to like side. I, I don't, I'm not going to side with anything here, but when it comes to, I guess the news, right. And you know, and all the media attention around this, you have to think, at the end of the day, you know, not I'm sh- nothing like this happens there. Yeah, I'm sure that they weren't used to cases like this happening. So I, I get what you mean. Like, this is something that was totally new for them and they wanted to put it in the news cycle. But it was just, you know, you should never report that you'd seen what had happened on a video that you didn't see. And you're just making it sound more outrageous. But now you're telling the public that this girl had went through these things that she might not have went through. You know, it was just, it was in very, it was in poor taste. I mean, yeah. I mean, essentially they're exploiting this ch- this child and her whole family. Like it, it's... And the memory of Dylan. Yeah, it's in bad taste. Yeah. It's in bad taste, but this is what happens. I almost feel like there should be times where the media shouldn't get involved the way they do. Um but that could be a hot take, yeah. and I don't want to go there. But well, not you know. not when it's a total lie, yeah, and also, that's what was happening there. Also, children too. When it involves children, I know they never say names and stuff like that if they're under the age of eighteen and stuff. Well, but, we have a survivor, you know. Yeah. So that's so I don't know. I just sometimes I feel like the media can get in the way or just make some things worse. It's great because it enlightens the public, but it's you know. Sometimes at the expense of the victims, you know, mental health of yeah. the survivor, totally, and the family to have to hear yeah. that. So, in total, Joseph Duncan would be tried in three separate courts. The first was in the state of Idaho, where he faced three first-degree murder charges. The kidnapping charges were going to be tried in federal court because Duncan had transported children across state lines for the purpose of sexual exploitation which is a federal offense. A plea bargain was reached for two reasons. One, the prosecution was motivated to make the deal so Shasta would not have to testify. And two, the defense wanted to try and get the death penalty off the table. But this was not something the judge was willing to hear. He stated that he was going to take the plea deal, but he was going to postpone sentencing in the state of Idaho until he was sentenced federally. The judge basically wanted to make sure that Joseph Duncan got the death penalty. So he was seeing like, okay, let's see if the federal government gives you the death penalty, then the state of Idaho will not because you're most like if you're on death row in federal prison, you're going to kind of reach your execution date before you would in a state facility. Okay. So that's why the judge did that. The federal trial was set to begin in January of 2008. However, one month before Duncan chose to plead guilty to all 10 charges against him before the trial can begin, 
And again, it was good news because Shasta would not have to testify. The specifics of the federal plea agreement were never made public because of a gag order. The judge in the case sentenced Duncan to three death sentences for kidnapping resulting in death, sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death, and the use of a firearm in a violent crime resulting in death, all related to the death of Dylan Growney. On November 3, 2008, Duncan was sentenced to an additional three federal life sentences for the kidnapping of Shasta Groney and for sexually abusing Shasta and Dylan Groney. Wow, okay. Then, in January of 2009, Duncan was extradited to California to face the charges against him for the assault and murder of Anthony Martinez. In March of 2011, Duncan pled guilty to Martinez's murder, For this charge, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole or right to appeal. A statement was made by the prosecutor saying that the sentencing decision was made in consultation with the Martinez family, who wanted closure and knew that Duncan would die from the federal charges before he would, ones from California. So kind of same as what had happened in Idaho. Okay. In one of the sources that I used for this podcast, the book Stolen in the Night by Gary C. King, the author spoke to Jenny Weiland, who is the director of Family and Friends of Violent Crime Victims, which is an organization that is based out of Washington State. Weiland stated that being a victim of the crimes that Shasta had to endure undermines and strips away the very basic human needs that we have. Because an individual experiences this, they lose the ability to feel safe, trust, and rebuild relationships. What Shasta has endured will be with her for her whole life. She will most likely develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. Through many interviews, Shasta has shown her strength, resilience, and ability to fight. She went on to have two children who she clearly loves deeply. But that doesn't mean that she has not faced many challenges in her life. Addiction to drugs is something that she has struggled with in the past and I'm sure will continue to struggle with due to the circumstances of her life. What happened to her and her family follows her every day and it's what people know her for. So we can only imagine how very difficult that is. In March of 2021, Joseph Duncan died in prison while on federal death row from brain cancer. Shasta Groney released this statement. Yes, Joseph Duncan is gone now, but it doesn't bring our loved ones back. It doesn't ease the aching pain of moments that they should be there for. They aren't because of the selfishness of one person. One thing is for sure, he does not exist anymore. Now we can live our lives knowing that. For so long, I've been struggling with the hate towards that man. Today, I woke up feeling like my soul was finally free. I hope other people affected by Joseph Duncan were able to wake up feeling the same way. I wanted to thank everyone who spent countless hours, days, and weeks searching for us, bringing awareness to our situation and praying for us. The continued support for me and my family does not go unnoticed, and for that I am extremely thankful. Shasta goes on to also say that she is thinking 
also of Duncan's other victims at this time, including the Martinez family um, and the family of the two girls that were murdered that he had falsely confessed to. It's a heavy one. It is. It's it's a rough one, and it's always really sad. I always say when it has to deal with children, it's just it's to another level, you know, that like you really it's almost like you can't even believe that another human being, another adult would go to you know, do something like that, you know? What is so crazy here in this case, and, and it really brought up later on is this question, right? In nineteen eighty it was said he is not curable. Like there is no way that this man is going to stop going after his urges. And he proved that time and time again through all of his infractions, his parole violations. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, people were saying he was dangerous and he was released. But then again, he did serve the time that he was supposed to serve. So it's hard when it comes to this. This is that that debate over, you know, what what kind of rehabilitation or monitoring program is set up for sex offenders in, in the United States. Well, to kind of piggyback off of that, I mean, in my opinion, the moment that he violated his terms when it came to not registering uh, when he moved, I believe. Yeah. That should have been an indication right there that he is not taking the system that's created Seriously. Seriously, which should have meant that he should have went back to prisons for some length of time. Well, he did. He went back for three years okay. for not registering. Oh, that's right. And then he was released in 2000 because that was in 1997. He I just didn't think that, that if that happens, though, he should be closely monitored. It should be looked at again here because he also tried with that one man to try and alter his papers So he wasn't even listed as a sex offender. That's another thing as well. It's very. Yeah. This man was very calculating and I am sure that there are other victims out there and people categorize him as a serial killer and I would say they were probably correct in doing so. Yeah. I mean I think uh I mean he's a walking breathing real life monster. Yeah, he he is and I'm glad that he's no longer breathing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a good Oof, one. That was a rough one. I enjoyed this very much. Yes. Um, it's definitely a wild ride. You know what this reminds me of? At least the first half of it. What? Like the first part when we're like talking about the beginning of like how that he scoped out the place and everything. Oh yeah. It's very um like Hinter Kafak ish. Yes, like this is what could have happened, but because of technology we're able to find Yes. Or kinda of like the case of um we did uh oh my gosh, um the axe murder. Um Beliska. Yes. Yeah, like how could he have done this? Yeah. And if this was another century, that it might have been never solved and was one of those kind of crimes. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Well, guys, before we go, we just want to thank all of our new supporters on Patreon. We really appreciate the donations and we hope that you're enjoying the extra episodes. So we just want to say thank you to Stephanie LaRose, Melissa McMahon, Lauren Shirley, Jay Patani, Sue Lewis upped her pledge, Tara, Christy Stray, Roz Rhodes, Jeanette Bacella, Kim Moreland, Lorinda Walker, Jessica Duquesne, Kayla, Kirstie Anderson, 
Summer Confer, Zachary Horvath, Nicole, Stacy, Mackenzie Lancer, Christy Adcock up to her pledge, Abigail Edgerton, Lori Bayek, Melanie Knights, Summer Parker, Catherine Miller, Pam, Brianna Henry, Allison Adams, Angela Herrick, Sarah Hibbler up to her pledge, Cece Walden, Toya O'Donnell, Leslie Cernasek, Sabra, Brianna Volpe, Christina Cervantes, Barry, Joe Walters, Ashley Cash, Anthony Rabino, Sarah Dryman, Nate Rugamir, Robin, Jackie Rodriguez, Caitlin, Casey, and McKinsey. Thank you so much for joining Patreon, and again, we hope you're enjoying it. All right, we will see you guys later. Bye. Bye, guys.